all I want is to feel the success of completing what I've done. And then, you know, if there's extra bonuses on top of that that I can celebrate, then that's amazing. But I don't ever want to, you know, finish that and go, oh, well, I failed because I didn't get my X goal time. So I think that's probably where I where I come from. And like I've, I've questioned myself about that. I've questioned like, am I just scared of putting myself out there and aiming for a time? And potentially that might be as well, but I don't really think that's my main motivation. I think it's just, you know, I want to celebrate what I've done, what I've achieved. And, you know, then the time is an extra, extra thing. And I, I do agree that, you know, some people come back with that because I feel like they kind of go, well, are you judging me for having a goal time? And it's like, well, it's, it's nothing about you. It's, all, it's about me. Like, you know, that's what you're reading into what I'm saying. You sort out what you want to do. I will do what I want to do. And that's that's totally fine. Um, I find comparison is just, oh, it's it drives me nuts because, I, you know, the amount of times I have people say, well, I could never do what you do. I could never do this. I could never do that. It's like, but I'm not asking you to. You know, you're on your own journey. You're on your own path. You, you do what you want to do and you achieve and you set your achievements in how you want it and I do the same thing and you know we can both celebrate at the end for whatever we've we've been able to do. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I'm Jess and I'm here with Coach Beach and we are here to wake up and shake up the world of endurance sports. We live against the grain and we have risked everything without regret to be with you today. We're passionate about living a life that is driven from the heart and we believe that we must do what we love in this life. We're thrilled to be here with a woman who left excuses in the dust and made history just last week. Mel Yuri is the first woman to attempt and complete Uberman, an ultra triathlon odyssey, where it is well understood that the mental goal is far superior to the physical. The 556-mile race begins on the shores of Catalina Island and comes to completion at Mount Whitney. It includes the Catalina Channel Crossing and the infamous 135-mile Badwater Run. Mel started just after 10 p.m. on Wednesday, October 9th, and finished 135 hours and 55 minutes later. She is currently the owner of the swim course record and has staked her claim in the history books. We followed her journey closely and we're in touch with her crew along the way. We know that this podcast was a must because we felt it in our hearts. We are so grateful to Mel and her husband, Michael, better known as Scraggy, who are with us today. And I think we are all in for an epic combo. Mel, Scraggy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. That was the most amazing introduction. That's really cool. Yeah, hi, guys. <laughs> and we're in the RV, which served as crew home. Um, we spent a little bit of time with some of your crew members last night and this morning, and they were telling us about like the sleeping arrangements and basically the story that they they landed us with time and time again was that it was a life-changing event for them. And I'm assuming it was a life-changing event for both of you guys, too. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've my I know who you're talking about, part of my crew, and they were saying exactly that. They said, you know, so how do you feel this has impacted your life? And my answer at the time, and it still is the same. I don't know. I need time to process time, you know, just to get my head around what I've just managed to do and managed to achieve. So I think probably in about two three months time, I'll be able to have an answer to that. But right now, I'm still just 
my head's just spinning. I think it takes time to allow these experiences because it's a part of you and it will never not be a part of you. And it literally takes time for it to soak into yourselves and allowing the lessons and the experiences to really become new foundations from which you drive inspiration and take action and lead and teach others. I know you're uh, in the mental health arena. What do you do for work? I'm a nurse. Yeah, so I, um, I've been in mental health for, uh, I think it's maybe about 13 years now. Um, yeah, and absolutely, like, my, my biggest driving force is to, if I can provide any kind of inspiration to anybody, then that that's, you know, goal achieved, really. You know, if I can get somebody off the couch, moving, walking around the block, then that's incredible. That's, you know, I, I kind of figure that um, people can look at me and just go, wow, if she can do it, then I can do something. So that's, that's absolutely, absolutely what I, what I believe. And yeah, you know, it, it helps people's mental health. Moving your body helps your mental health. Like that's, there's no two ways around that. So yeah, if that can have an impact, then amazing. So when did Uberman first come into your awareness? I, I've thought about this and I can't actually pinpoint a moment when it did. I, I'm in that space in the world where I find out about a lot of different events, a lot of underground things. Like I'll come to somebody and say, what do you think about this? And they say, I've never heard of that. Like I did Epic Five a couple of years ago and people still don't know what that is. And so I just kind of was like, well, if you want to know about underground races, come and talk to me because I probably would have heard of them <laughs> in one way or another. Someone sent me a link. Someone's, you know, posted on Facebook and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Let me have a look at that. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was a couple of years ago um, because after I did Epic Five, my plan was to you know, have a bit of a break, have a bit of a rest. And then I thought, oh, well, actually, you know, I'd like to go on and do Ultraman, um, which I did last year in Hawaii. And then, um, yeah, you know, I'd planned already before then to then continue on and then do, do Uberman this year. So. so when we have these big goals, you know, because there was other things that you wanted to accomplish before getting here, and perhaps they were seen as stepping stones. But like, where does patience come into the plan as far as really being prepared, really being physically and mentally ready for something so big? I'm a very, very patient person. I plan races years in advance. Before I did my first um, Ultraman in 2014, I found out about that four years ago, four years prior to that. And I said to myself at the time, I've just done my second Ironman. I'm not in any physical shape whatsoever to be able to absorb the training required to get to Ultraman. So I need to, you know, set it as a few year down the track goal. And that's the mindset I've then continued on with that, you know, I can't do everything at once. I only have one big event each year because otherwise mentally it would just tax me way too much. Physically, you know, the amount of training that it takes to get to these events, it's just, it's too much. I'm not the kind of person who can back up several races, big races in a year. So if I'm planning in a thing, I'm like, okay, well, this year's allocated to this race. This is allocated to that race. And then, you know, on, on from there. And there's nothing sexy about this race. You go to the website, it's, you know, no lotteries, no sponsors, no bull, and not even a registration fee. Yeah, yeah, it and it's so cool. <laughs> and it's like you are, you and you alone are responsible for your safety. Yeah, absolutely. Is that underground feel something that excites you more than kind of the, the bigger hype? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I I love the ultra endurance world. It's just, there's just something about it. It attracts a certain type of person that 
I don't know. It's just they, people are just like nothing else, really, who who race ultras. Even um, even ultra trail runners, like they're just really chilled, you know, just really lovely, really friendly. You know, you go to the start line of an ultra race, and everyone's just hanging around, having a chat. You know, no one's trying to like jostle at the front, trying to you know get to the get to the start, get to the best position. And you know, they're like, okay, go. The, oh yeah, all right, all right, let's go. Yeah, let's have you know, <laughs> off we go, trot along. Um, and I just, I just love that vibe. I just really, really connect well with that, um, that community. Um, I think for this particular one, we actually found the whole planning process really overwhelming. I know I particularly did because it took a while to kind of get maps and, you know, get everything organized. And one of the other crew members um, for another athlete, she actually sat down and like did a step-by-step on, you know, all the maps individually and then sent them around. There was lots of emails and communication and everything about it. And because there was so much unknown, we were just like, well, we don't know, like, you know, where the crew are going to sleep, where they're going to have rest, where, you know, I can stop, you know, if it's possible to stop on the side of the road, you know, where are we actually going to go, how long it's going to take. Like, there's so much that I feel like this is like nothing else that we've done before. Whereas other races, at least if there's that organisation, you get a big binder to say, this is where you're going. This is all the services available around. This is, you know, your start, finish, everything else. Whereas this was just like an open-ended, yeah. So it was, it was a very, very different experience. So it sounds like you, you really, really like the blaze trails. Has this always been something, you know, that you've done in life? Or did you ever shift at some point? I... I don't ever feel impeded by, you know, being the only female or, you know, just like I'm kind of one of those people who's like, I really like the idea of doing, doing something and, you know, if I really, really want it, then I'll make sure that I find a way to be able to do it, basically. Yeah, I think with a lot of a lot of my goals that, you know, seem like really, really out there to a lot of people, I've actually done a lot of thinking and processing and, you know, organising in my brain about how this is actually going to be possible before I even voice it really and that's kind of the the point that I get to but because I am when I did epic five I was the only female out of 10 of the athletes and people like oh you know how was that and I was like well I didn't really consider that to be anything unusual because you know I'm just I'm used to having like a male dominated field in wherever I go so you know if I'm the only female whatever that's fine I'll just you know play with the guys don't really care like it's just it's not something that um, that stops me from doing things. I'm like, you know, if I want to do it, then I, I will do it. Um, it probably goes back to when I was a kid, I was incredibly stubborn. So <laughs> I, I say I've turned that into mental strength, my stubbornness. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like, you know, my, my parents would definitely say, you know, if I wanted to do something, I would find a way to do it. So even if they yeah. said, no, you were, you were pretty intent on making, finding a way. Yeah. 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 Finding, finding a way within reason. Yeah, definitely. So when you see people who, uh, maybe people at work or people in sports around you, when you see them struggling, when you see them like not getting the workout done or getting something done, does that, does that kick up anything inside you? Like, why aren't they just acting? Like, can you just take an action? We used to be like that a lot, Michael and I. Like, I we have very different training philosophies. I like to just get in, get it done. Michael's like, oh, that's okay. If I miss a session here, I've missed a session there. And that used to really stress me out. And it got to the point where I actually had to step back and say, I just need to let that go. You do your thing. I do my thing. And yeah, because it actually created a fair bit of conflict between us. Um, I guess like in other people in the world, I don't really mind. Like, you know, you're on your own journey, you're on your own path. You know, like if you ask for assistance and absolutely I'm going to help, but I don't feel like I 
have a role to step in and say, you know, you should be doing it like this, you should be doing it like that, because I don't want people to do that to me. So that's the way I kind of I kind of look at it. But I guess the dynamic between Scraggy and I, it's a, it was a little bit different. Um, and it took took a long time for, you know, of him finally just going, just stop, leave me alone. I was like, okay, message received. <laughs> well, I think it's really important as couples, right? You want to lift each other up. You want to, um, and I think we've all experienced it, BJ and I both being athletes, we've experienced it as well. Like, why are you not doing that? Or why are you doing that? And to just kind of back off and don't hassle and give them space. And just like everybody else, realize that, you know, the four of us are exactly where we need to be at any given point for our highest potential for opportunity to grow in this experience in life. Your mom and dad, growing up, you know, you had you had this stubbornness about you and, and this ability, which I believe you probably came into this world with, to, to find a way. You know, some of us are hardwired that way. Were they supportive of it? Or was there kind of like, was there any part of like, you felt like maybe you're trying to kind of just be put into a box and like just be the good girl that just does what we tell you to do and instead you're kind of this out of box living against the grain kind of kid were they supportive of that yeah absolutely absolutely they were um my parents are hippies so they're just like free spirit go for your life you know do what you want to do make sure you you know you be happy with whatever whatever life choices that you make um yeah so no they were they were always always really supportive of that um I didn't really start getting involved into a lot of sport until I was later later in life when I was um when I first started working full-time I really kind of threw myself more into sport and I know that my mum like she came over with Scraggy, my mum and dad, to crew for my first Ultraman race. And um, they found that incredibly stressful. And my mum said after that, I'm never doing that again. But I mean, like the fact that they ended up saying, you know, yes, they will come over. Yes, they will support. Like that's, yeah, that kind of really shows the, the level of dedication that they have to, to help me achieve what I, what I want to achieve. So I have a question for Scraggy. So, you know, with Mal doing this, these huge events right like some people can't even fathom or maybe it's the first time they're even hearing Ultraman um, something like Uberman the preparation and all the hours it's going to take her and years literally years um, has that ever been like a struggle for you to, to just realize that you know there's there's you guys and then there's also these epic goals that take a lot of time I think for us um, early on we just uh, we had our difficulties training um, for events together and um, different concepts about training, um, but I, I, I sort of come to the terms with the fact that whenever Mel puts her head to something, it's getting done. It's going to get done one way or the other, and that speaks to her stub- stubbornness or determination, whichever way you want to look at it. So in my head, I just stopped fighting fighting it and, and just. Um, just supported it um did what i could do as much as i could do to support her to get these dreams and these goals these goals completed and that means that yes i'm usually the one who's on crew and and running the show on crew um and having to take time away from work and that sort of stuff but that's just in a partnership like this that's just what you do people kind of look at me and it's like well why do you do this or look at both of us well why do you do this it's, well that's just what we do that's who we are and, and and how we roll in so many ways but you guys have walked through the conflict and figuring it out this dynamic this relationship this partnership that you're here to share like you've done the work 
to be able to kind of surrender into your roles. Yeah, it, and that that was that for me. I know was a bit of a challenge. Obviously, being the male in the in the partnership, like I had to sort of be not the dominant one, I guess, in so many ways. Um, and that was definitely a challenge for me um, to take on that role because um, when you grow up, you're the you're the dominant one as a male. You're the breadwinner. You're the one who's supposed to be leading the partnership and and be the breadwinner and all that sort of stuff. And um, for me to try and take that back step was was definitely a challenge. And that may have been part of the reasons why we we clashed a bit at the, uh, in the early days. Yeah, that that resistance because really you have to let go of and abandon these ridiculous programmings about the role that a man should play and the role that a woman should play. And it's just, it's so uh, ingrained in generation after generation after generation. And so as somebody who used to think that vulnerability was weakness, like I look at you and I hear your words and I realize that it wasn't a backstep. It was like, it was a step into a very powerful stance of not buying into this crap that you're supposed to be a certain way and do a certain thing, but you can actually show up for your wife in a way that a lot of other spouses can't do because they're stuck on those labels. I guess I'm leading from a different perspective. So it's 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 instead of being that person out front leading, um, I'm leading from a different um, spot. Obviously, with crew and just trying to keep everything else around the house organised while and and while Mel's out training, flat out, we're making sure that well dishes are done and 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 the washing is done and all, just those those little things that seems really small and trivial, but if if they're not done, um, then the whole sort of house starts to fall down. But also even stuff like um, making sure Mel's bikes are running and that sort of stuff. So I'm a, I'm a bike mechanic as well. So we're just making all that sort of stuff, making sure things, uh, she is able to do what she needs to do. Um, it's just, like I said, a, a different a different role. Yeah, it's definitely not a one-man show by any means. So let's talk a little bit about the training. I mean, you've been training for this your whole life, right? Your stubbornness started earlier. And I think, um, you know, stubbornness, determination, tenacity, whatever, we can group it all um, into this wonderful form of fuel that gets you where you say you're going to go. Yeah. What was training looking like? The like the height of training specifically leading up to Uberman, what were some of those big, biggest weeks looking like? <clears throat> yeah, so um, this training was like like nothing, something I hadn't done before, really. So um, because I've done Epic Five and the training is very specific for that, I've done three Ultramans, so the training is specific for that. So again, you know, it's I swear my coach, she has a heart attack every time I say I'm going to do a new race because she's like, oh God, what now? <laughs> and she said to me, she's like, I have no idea how to train you for that. I'm like, that's okay, you'll figure it out. Like, you know, I, I have complete faith in her and she, she did. Like she, you know, she got me to a point where I was able to, to be very, very successful. Um, so in terms of like breaking down hours, my biggest training week uh, was sat around 27 hours and that included a 100K trail running race um, that I did. So I usually say to my coach, um, Kate, that, you know, these are the races that I want to do. And, you know, like, is that okay? And she's like, yep, no worries, and incorporates them around my training. So she said to me, we started specifically training for Uberman around the start, the middle of the year. Um, after Ultraman Hawaii last year, I had a bit of a break and then started back in January, just general fitness training and then that specifically. And the way that she decided to do it was – 
to overload one sport each week. So um, I'd have a big swim focus. So I'd swim maybe like five, six times a week. And in that a couple of times I did like a late night swim and then early swim the next day. So I'd be swimming in the pool at, I don't know, eight, nine o'clock at night. And then I'd be back at the pool at five, five thirty in the morning. So I had that very, very short recovery time between sessions, which is a lot shorter than what I normally do. But again, it's that getting your body used to still managing through fatigue and keep keep going and, you know, a double swim day or something like that. Um, that for a week. And then I'd have like a really big bike week where, you know, I'd have like three days of wind trainer, you know, back to back or, you know, and then on weekends, I generally have back to back days of um, I think my biggest bike was about nine hours um, of hill riding. So where I live in Melbourne, one of the the easiest way for me sometimes is just to do hill repeats because I don't have to think about where I'm going. I don't, if the le- the less decisions I need to make, the better I find. So if I go, right, I'm going to go there, I'll park my car there, I'll have all of my little aid station in my car, I know where there's tots, I know where there's water, I'll just go up and down the hill, you know, for nine hours, done. I don't have to think about it, easy, I know exactly where I'm going. So um, yeah, I'd do something like that and then you know, like the next day I'd be, you know, back riding hills for another eight hours or, or something like that. So again, it's just that, you know, overloading of that particular sport. Um, yeah. And then I did five 50K runs um, this year as well, because running is definitely my weak leg in triathlon. So whenever I'm doing a race build, I'm always like focusing hard on my running. So um, I wanted to do 50K runs. So then in my mind, if, you know, I got into Uberman and I had like 50Ks left to go, I'd be like, well, that's easy. I can do 50Ks. And I actually managed to get to the point where I'd line up for a 50K race and go, oh, yeah, easy. Got this. I didn't have to even think about managing mentally to get through the distance because I knew I had it done before I even started, really. So um, that that was a really big mental barrier to get to for me. Um, to be able to, you know, manage that because I've never run a hundred mile race. I ran a hundred K and that was the furthest I'd ever run before I did Uberman. So, um, I was, I was going to do a miler, but then I thought, well, the recovery time from that was going to take me too long and it'd take out too much quality training. So I just do a hundred K just, I, you know, I do a hundred K. I hate people when they say that word. So I was like, Oh, don't say that. Um, so yeah, like, and I did, I did a hundred K, um, again, you know, just to see what it's like running through the night to see, you know, how I could manage that fatigue and that had, um, 3000 meters of elevation. So it was quite a hard run to do as well. Um, so yeah. And then that, ended up, you know, leading into, you know, a big week. Um, before of my races, I generally run probably about uh, anywhere between 10, 15 Ks the day before, which is again, not something I'd normally do before a race, but it's, you know, trying to get that learning, running through fatigue and, you know, continuing on and not, not stopping. And then after that, I think I was averaging about 20 hours a week. My coach would give me a couple of easier days at the start of the week and then build up for the, for the rest of the week and then into a, into a big weekend around, around my work schedule. I think this has so much to speak to about consistency because I was waiting for you to say that you had like a 80 hour training week and you're like, oh, the biggest week was about 27 hours, but it's consistency. It's week after week after week. It's loading the legs. It's letting them recover. Even if it's just for a few hours, it's getting back in the water. It's and swimming serving as a degree of recovery for the body, even if the swim is long and hard. 
so many people, they're chasing the numbers, right? And you can't, Uberman requires you not to chase the numbers or you won't even get to the start line. There's just no way you can chase those kind of numbers in your training. But here you are going into a 135 mile run with a 62 mile long run under your belt. I mean, this, this is a huge gap. How skilled are you at trust? The way I looked at Uberman from the very beginning was it's epic five with a longer swim and then the bike and run a very similar distances. So it's instead of doing an Ironman a day, I was doing all swim, all bike, all run. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I can do epic five so I can do Uberman. And that's, that's the way I kind of conceptualized it because I'm very big on basically what you're saying is um, I need to almost like prove to myself I can do it before I can do it really. And so in terms of the swim, I did a 20 kilometer um, non-wetsuit swim. It's over in Australia. It's one way across to Rottnest Island. I did that at the start of 2018 with the specific goal of doing that to see if I could make the 35 kilometer swim for Uberman. And so I made that and I was like, oh, okay, well, if I can do 20, I can do 30. You know, it's, it's that kind of conceptualizing. And I know that once I start, I won't finish until I'm done. So in terms of, you know, starting the run, it doesn't matter. If I, if I have to walk, you know, 135 miles, I will walk 135 miles to get it done. So it wasn't ever a question of, you know, what if or could I, it was just how long is it going to take pretty much. So you have trust, you trust yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I trust myself and I trust my team as well. So I trust the team of practitioners that I have at home, like my massage, my physio, my osteo, like all of those people that I get regular body maintenance work from. I trust my coach 100% to be able to get me to a level to be able to, you know, do it. Because, I mean, I was at the start line going, I don't know if I'm fit enough, but I know my coach, you know, she's got me to a point that she believes it. So I, I use that. I use that trust from her. And I put incredible people around me in my crew that I also trust to get me through what I'm doing. So it's trusting me, but trusting everybody else around me as well. But I think that the only reason that you can trust those around you and trust the plan and trust that Kate has put you in the right position is because you trust yourself. Because if you don't trust yourself, then how are you going to trust your decision to trust Kate? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that is we, a good point. If yeah. we go like I see where you're going there. Yeah. it really yeah. begins with self-belief because, you know, once you start, you're not going to stop till it's done. Right? And that's that just that's that tenacity. That's fire. Like you've got fire, right? which can be your best friend and Scraggy, maybe her worst enemy. <laughs> yeah. oh it is my worst enemy I tell yeah, you like absolutely. the amount of training sessions I probably should have stopped and I didn't because I was sick because I was you know like I remember one in particular I was feeling incredibly nauseous I was standing there vomiting thinking should I continue running or should I just walk back to my car I'm like I look about later and just shake my head and I you know wrote to my coach and I'm like oh so I stopped she's like yeah of course you should have stopped I was like oh okay right good <laughs> That's great. In that decision process, how many, how long do those decisions usually last? Because that seems to be pretty, like, should I go or should I not go? And do you find that you have this length at any time of overthinking things ever? It's, it's more, should I stop? It's not, you know, should I go? It's always, yes, I should go. It's more like, when should I stop? And I agonize over that decision. Absolutely. And then, because for me, the idea of missing a session just eats me up. <laughs> like I really, really struggle with that. Unless 
I feel like unless I'm given permission, then I really struggle. So if my coach says, no, it's okay, you know, you're sick, just rest, then I'm like, okay, yep, no worries, then then it's okay. But before that time, I, yeah, I completely really, really struggle with the decision to stop. Well, because you, you're, so, you're too close. You're too close to it. So Kate can look from the view up above and say, oh, yeah, no, totally, stop. Like, give your, And we find that a lot with our athletes. Like, just give them the permission. Give them the permission to take the risk. Give them the permission to take the rest, whatever it may be. But when we're in it, we, it it's like we're too close. We don't have the zoomed out view. Um, so let's go to the race. You got to get yourself a boat. You need a kayaker. You need a crew. You need all that stuff. How do you choose your crew? Yeah, so it's actually really interesting. Um, at Ultraman Hawaii last year, there was a, a pre-athlete, you know, drinks, crew, everybody. And I had missed the opportunity to meet Mary when she was over in Ultraman Australia. So I said, I'm like, oh, she's racing. Awesome. You know, I really want to meet her. She seems really cool. So I went and sat down with her and her crew. And we we're just chatting and, you know, I told them about Uberman and it's so funny. If you ask them, they're like, we basically latched onto you at that point and said, we're going to help you no matter what. <laughs> Those are three solid ladies. Oh, Mary, my God. Our audience knows Mary Notch. She's been on the podcast a couple times. Um, Josie Vitale and um, and Heidi. Uh, just, you know, a girl from Boston, please. If oh, anybody's yeah. going to get it done, that girl's going to get it done. And we know these girls. They are strong, strong warrior women, really amazing athletes, um, so driven and um, we love them dearly I mean it's they've brought us to you which is which is so beautiful it doesn't sound like you had much of a choice they were going to be your people yeah pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> but I mean it's always that thing of you know you talk to people in the moment and they say yeah yeah absolutely we'll be there and so I'm like okay yep you know tuck that one away in my mind you know sure and then I contacted them again the following year and I just said hey you know just putting it out there I know you said you would but you know there's a very very big difference between saying it and then actually committing and turning up so you know because it's a big it's a big commitment and I'm well aware of that and I just you know I said look you know if there's life things going on if there's something else like I get it if you can't come that's fine Um, and initially Josie was saying like you know probably not lots of work and I'm like yep no I, I understand you know I don't I don't ever want people to feel like they have to because I've already said yes. And so I'm like, you know, I give people You don't want anybody there under the energy of obligation. No, you can't. You can't at all. It's got to be pure, unconditional love. Correct. Correct. Um, And then how I found, I mean, you know, Scraggy, he's, you know. Yeah, he was a thing. By the way, this is what's happening. (laughs) Um, And then I put, just put a call out on Facebook and I just said, hey, does anyone, does anyone want to come, basically? Um, And that's when my friend Willie, who I'd recently reconnected with in the past couple of years um, with him, but I'd known him for, you know, since basically I started doing longer distance triathlons, like maybe 10, 11 years ago. And so he was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I'll come. And it was funny, I said to him, I was like, I wasn't even sure you were going to come. And he's like, no, of course I was. And I was like, well, you know, like, you know, you've said you were going to do something else and you weren't able to. And, you know, I like, I understand, like, there's a lot going on at the moment for him and, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, I always was going to come. And then my friend um, Will from Canada, like he, he's my just rock solid, you know, he's like, I said, I've got a race. He's like, yes. Like, do you want to know what it is? Don't care. When do I need to be? Where do I need to be? I will be there, basically. Um, yeah, and then I had another friend that is an internet friend, as I call them. Um, he was able to come around for for a few days. Um, yeah, so I kind of... And then you had a documentary being filmed as yes, well, right? Yes. Filmed, the whole thing's been filmed. Yes. So that, oh my, that was, that it still blows me away that that's happened. So... 
When I first conceptualized doing Uberman, you know, bringing a team together and everything, um, I was talking to a friend. And I said, you know what would be amazing is if we could make a documentary about this. And she um, had suggested I put in for a grant through, I can't even remember who it was, um, but I didn't end up getting that. So I kind of let that go. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I don't have the finances to be able to do that. You know, that's just, it's not going to happen. And then one of Will's friends, actually, um, a work colleague, he is wanting to get into documentary filmmaking. Will was talking to him saying, oh, you know, this is my next thing. I'm going to go and, you know, crew for this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Graham was like, I need in on this. So he contacted me and said, would you mind if I came and did a documentary? I was like, um, let me think about that. Uh, yes. <laughs> this is why we have to trust. Yes. Because yes. look at the beautiful, like how this fell into place. Amazing. I mean, and you, and they, that's how it works, right? When it's, when it's really meant to be, when you're kind of like, yeah, that would be amazing, but I'm not going to freak out about it if it doesn't happen. And then they contact you and yeah. it happens. Yeah. That's wonderful. Okay, so um, tell us about like getting on that boat and heading over to Catalina because this triathlon starts with the Catalina Channel Crossing, one of the most daunting channel swims, you know, one of the big seven in the world. But you're not under um, the Federation's rules. So you did have a wetsuit. Yes. Did you do any cold water training? No. <laughs> so <laughs> You don't need to do that. No, I no, don't it. worry, but it's fine. The swim was the least of my problems. Um, no, no, no. Um, so <laughs> uh, I don't want to underestimate it. No, to be honest, it was it was really interesting. So, I mean, in, in Melbourne uh, through winter, our bay drops down to about 10, 12 degrees. I wasn't getting in 10, 12 degrees, even in a wetsuit. I don't know what that is. That's Celsius. I don't know what Fahrenheit, but ridicu- cold. ridiculously cold, cold basically. Okay. Um, there was no amount of clothing that I could have worn to be able to get in there and feel okay to swim. So um, I came over to San-, San Diego and stayed with a friend, Man, for um, a couple of weeks beforehand. And so we did a swim in the bay the day before I did Super Frog with him, I raced Super Frog and then I did one other open water swim, which was the day before um, the day before the race, I went down and checked out the beach where I was going to be landing. So that was it. I was like, oh, that water's a bit cold. That was this year's Super Frog. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, we really? Are you yeah, kidding? Yeah, yeah. We oh, my God. We're That's... running the information booth. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So you're like, your experience in the Pacific was pretty Quick. Pretty minimal. Yeah. Um, but Are you, you is swimming your strong suit? I, I'm never concerned about swimming. I've always, I've swum since I was a child. Like it's, it's just, it's a part of me. Like if I'm, if I'm not swimming a couple of times a week, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling really. So except for when I'm taking a break, then I'm, I'm happy to not do anything. But yeah, I, I absolutely love swimming. I'm really relaxed in the water, in the ocean. I find I'm, I have a, a I find a peace in the ocean and I have a really nice feel for the water as well because I find, um, you know, I've taught myself over the years on how to kind of roll with the waves as you're going along as well and like, you know, not fight it and, you know, just kind of cruise along with it and like, okay, this is happening now. Yeah, being pushed here. Yeah, okay, no worries. Then come back and, and whatever. So I absolutely love, love swimming in the water. It's interesting when you say it's one of the hardest because I know a lot of English Channel swimmers that looks a lot, lot harder to me because I look at the track of how people swim and it's, you know, this usual massive S curve, you know, the tides are pushing left, front and centre. And then I saw the Catalina swims because I had two friends do it in the couple of weeks before I did and it was a straight line. I was like, that looks really easy. There's no tides pushing you around. I'm like, so in my mind, it wasn't an incredibly difficult swim. 
Um, I probably went in completely naive about, you know, what it was going to be like, but that's not always a bad thing. <laughs> no, it's not. And I think it plays to mindset. You know, what do you, what's your stance on like, if you believe it, how much that influences your experience? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it just, it was just one of those things. I'm like, well, you know, I have to start swimming here and get to there and whatever way that happens, that happens. So that's fine. And I, I said to my boat captain, I said, look, if there's any sharks around and you're concerned about them, you know, just pull me out of the water. This isn't an official swim. So, you know, once the shark leaves, then you know, I can jump back in again and I can keep swimming. It doesn't mean that the, the swim's over. And he just laughed at me. He's like, there's no, not going to be any sharks. I'm like, oh, no, no, that's fine. Like, I'm well aware that, you know, I'm swimming in their home. But, you know, on that off occasion, I just didn't want him to say, oh, well, your swim's done. That was basically my motivation for that. <laughs> like, I'm getting back yeah, in. But I am getting back in because I'm getting this done like as I said like as soon as I start something I'm doing whatever I can to finish it so yeah and yeah you know I had had the belief from doing the 20k that yes I could do this with my yes I will get through it it's just a matter of how long it was going to take me so that's you could say that's an expectation that you have that you know you expect when you start that you're going to finish yeah have expectations always served you um in in triathlons I would say yes I mean, I had, I haven't really ever thought about this. That's why I feel like I'm kind of stuck right now. Well, I think that which is, yeah. a lot of people have expectations and they get failed expectations. They get disappointed and they can get into kind of this negativity. But it's like yeah. there's also there's also a school of thought around, you know, yeah, you should expect to be at the finish line. But the difference is the attachment to that expectation. Yeah, okay. Yeah, now I, now I know what you're going with that. So... I work best without pressure, I find. So as soon as I try and put a time goal or, you know, like something like that, then I get really, really stressed and I just, I don't, don't do as well. So I find that like with this, with this race, I ended up actually matching every single one of my predicted times and even a little bit better at, in the swim especially, but I didn't have an attachment to if I don't do that, I will fail. It was... Because you know you're going to finish. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, my goals are always have fun, be safe, finish, and then whatever time goal after that. So it's never my priority. It's never like, you know, it's if I can, that'd be nice. But if not, then that's fine. Yeah. Do you think it gets, um, that mindset gets a little bit uh, easier as the distances become so big, like ju knowing just the accomplishment of something like that is so epic that it really doesn't matter. And we were talking before the mics went on that somebody took a year to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, abs yeah, absolutely. Because I think if I went back to Ironman racing, I tried to put a time on it, then I might struggle a bit with that. Because um, I know when I did Super Frog, like I was like, I don't know how long it's going to take me. I haven't done a half in two years. So who knows, like whatever, whatever happens. So so, yeah, it's. Um, I think if I, the lo definitely the longer I get, it's more about finishing and then whatever else. Is, it's a bonus. Yeah, because if you look at a five k, you come back to a five k. I mean, what else is? I mean, there's time. It's yeah. So short, like yeah. it's such a finite distance. But I think with a lot of athletes, they they can't make that connection. So they they're either tied to the goal, the time, or they get in the space of. I don't understand this. So you're saying that I don't work hard because I, I shouldn't work towards a time. And they, and they get conflicted in that, in that realm. They're like, well, I want to try, but you're saying don't attach to going fast. How would you share your perspective with them? Yeah, I guess that um, because I, 
I don't like to feel that I've failed at anything, I think, and that's probably why also I don't try and attach times to things because I don't want that disappointment at the end of a completion of an event. So I feel like all I want is to feel the success of completing what I've done and then, you know, if there's extra bonuses on top of that they can celebrate, then that's amazing. But I don't ever want to, you know, finish that and go, oh, well, I failed because I didn't get my X goal time. So I think that's probably where I where I come from. And like I've I've questioned myself about that. I've questioned like, am I just scared of putting myself out there and aiming for a time? And potentially that might be as well, but I don't really think that's my main motivation. I think it's just, you know, I want to celebrate what I've done, what I've achieved. And, you know, then the time is an extra, extra thing. And I, I do agree that, you know, some people come back with that because I feel like they kind of go, well, are you judging me for having a goal time? It's like, well, it's, it's nothing about you. It's, all, it's about me. Like, you know, that's what you're reading into <laughs> right, what I'm saying. Right. You sort out what you want to do. I will do what I want to do. And that's that's totally fine. Um, I find comparison is just, oh, it's it drives me nuts because, I, you know, the amount of times I have people say, well, I could never do what you do. I could never do this. I could never do that. It's like, but I'm not asking you to. You know, you're on your own journey. You're on your own path. You you do what you want to do and you achieve and you set your achievements in how you want it. And I do the same thing. And, you know, we can both celebrate at the end for whatever we've, we've been able to do. That's hard because a lot of people live in comparison. We could go down a road with that. Let's, um, let's come back to the swim, though, because I really want to take people through this experience. How long did this swim take you? 11 hours, 54. And what were the conditions like? The first 20K were amazing. It was like the nicest tide. I was just being pushed along. I felt like I hardly had to take a stroke. I just did because I was like, well, I better swim. (laughs) But it was such a strong tide. It was so good. And then um, I got really choppy. And then, you know, I felt like I was kind of just being thrown around the water a little bit. Um, I don't know what the swell got to, um, but I know all my crew got, you know, felt a bit nauseous and felt a bit sick. So obviously it was, you know, it wasn't great. Um, And then... So I, my Garmin ended up telling me I did um, 35 kilometres. And so I'd actually had someone who has done kayaking for the Cha- Catalina Channel a lot of times. And he said to me, don't look up for the last like 25% of your swim. And so, of course, what I did is I looked up towards the shore. Because <laughs> what else are you going to do? Because I, oh, I'm getting close. <laughs> but then the shore never comes. And it like, because I was looking at my Garmin going, oh, you know, I'm about 10 hours. Oh, yeah, the shore maybe, you know, looks like it's about an hour away. Okay, well, I might end up getting, you know, under 11 hours. And um, I went over to my kayaker and, you know, because I was feeding every 20 minutes and had something. He's like, okay, this will be your last feed. You know, we're not far away. Because he was drawn into the idea that we're quite close as well. Ended up taking me like another you know, hour or so longer than what I thought because I have no idea. Maybe it's just that particular patch of water. It's just incredibly difficult to get to. Like I didn't feel any rougher than any other part or maybe it's just the illusion of the shore just, you know, like it was. And the the other thing that I found really, really hard is I do like underwater navigation. You can see the bottom. You can see like in Hawaii, the coral is moving. The sand that you can see is moving underneath you. So you know you're moving forward. But the water's so deep in the Catalina Channel, you can't see the bottom. It's only blue underneath you. So the only thing I had to look at was my kayaker and I could see that he was still paddling forward. So I knew I was still moving forwards because the shore just didn't get any closer. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well, you're moving, so that means I must be moving. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that that part I found, I found incredibly challenging um, to get, get um, get to the end. How do you work with those mental challenges? I just switch into just get it done mode. 
Yeah, because at one time, because Josie was on the boat, and she said to me, she's like, you know, you're you're doing really well. Like, you know, your strokes really consistent. I'm like, I'm in just get this finished. I'm just like, I get into that just really strong mindset of get to the shore and then you can have a break. Then, you know, whatever, whatever happens after that. So, yeah, I find I just kind of get really, really focused and just, yeah, just almost power through. <laughs> do you relax into that? Is there a relaxation into that? Or is it, or is there, do you feel like there's a lot of energy that goes with that? I find it's more like the intense energies in my mind. It doesn't transfer into my body. So my stroke, um, you know, Michael always says I look like I'm incredibly lazy when I swim because I've just got such a relaxed looking stroke. And from my crew, they said it never changed. Like um, I was pulling a lot more with my right hand. So I kind of drift towards the right um, towards the end when I was getting more fatigued. But apart from that, like, you know, my stroke rate was always very, very consistent. And I always make sure that I'm not bringing that tension into my arms, into my stroke, into my body. But it's definitely a mindset that I that I get into. Yeah, it's like a, a, re, a relax so you can go fast. Right? Yeah. And the, I love that the intensity is in the focus. It's that one pointed focus and uh, it's the will. And yeah. the, the will is what allows you have a very strong will, clearly. And the will is what allows us to focus on just get it done, that one thing. Have you always been focused like that? No, that's definitely developed over time. That's definitely something I've I've really worked on. It was interesting. I was talking to my crew and I could see that kind of moment where I went, huh, when I was talking about um, how I do my mindset training. So I say like <clears throat> when my coach says to me, you know, okay, we're going to start training for this event, you know, at this time. And from that time onwards, I do my mental strength training and my physical training in every single session that I do from that point on. And so every session I'm thinking about, thinking about the race, I'm thinking about the goal, I'm thinking about the finish line, I'm thinking about, you know, if I have a really tough session, if I have a really bad day, then I'm like, okay, tuck that one away, draw on that during the race, you know, I'm just, I'm constantly working on my mental game at the same time as my physical, physical game. So I've definitely developed that over time. Is that because the mind would want to go away? Like, okay, so you go do a, a 4K swim and then your mind starts thinking about, well, what's Michael doing? What's like, what do I, I got to get stuff done at work. Does it, is it bringing it back to the moment and what the goal, what the overall goal is? Is it that transformation? No, not so much. Like I, I let my mind wander here, there and everywhere, but um, it's always still in the back of my mind to something to think about as well. So I have a thing where like if I'm going through a rough patch, I won't try and force myself out of it. I'll just feel it and sit in it and wait for it to move through. So, um, you know, if, I, if my mind's wandering, I'll just let it wander and that's fine. But it's always something that I'm focused on is like, you know, like if I have a particular session that, you know, felt quite easy and everything, I'm like, yep, okay, good. You know, that was for recovery. But still in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about working on my mental strength all the time. Because my coach said to me once, she's like, you know, you're the most mentally strong person that I know. And, you know, like, it's fine. You can, you know, you don't need to do all this work. And I was like, well, I do because I don't rely that it's going to be there when I need it. So, yeah. And that's that. why you're the most mentally strong person <laughs> is because you're doing these reps over yeah. and over again. Yeah. So giving that pass to be like, oh, you're, you've got it. You're good. And you, you described in this podcast, like, you do the work. Once you set your mind on it, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. So that strong will will supersede anything that happens. And even when... You're in that Catalina crossing and you look down and it just because you started in the dark and you can't see anything. And were there any thoughts, anything that came up to pull you out to be like, what's in the dark? No, 
No, I was I was so excited to swim in the dark. I've never swum in the dark before. It was amazing. So I was so I was like, this is going to be really fun. <laughs> there was probably more fear from the, the crew than there yeah, was totally. from you being in the water. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, my my anxiety is around risk. So in my mind, if there is like an incredibly risky situation I'm putting myself in, then I'll be feeling more anxious and more stressed about it. But I had a boat captain who has done, I don't know how many channel crossings. And I had, you know, a very experienced kayaker next to me and I had, you know, glow sticks on. I had, you know, they had a spotlight if, you know, when I, cause you start the swim by getting off the boat, you swim to um, the beach and then you, you know, stand up on the beach. It was at Doctor's Cove and then you get in and then your swim starts. So, um... In my mind, if I was swimming in the middle of the ocean by myself with no one around, I would like be terrified. But I have, you know, six pairs of eyes on me at all times. I don't feel any concern about that because I know that I'm safe. So that's that's kind of how that that mindset is. Because like on the bike at one stage, um, I was on the Pacific Coast Highway and there was no shoulder and I was freaking out and I stopped and I called my crew and I'm like, I'm going on the path. This is not okay. I don't feel safe. And so then, you know, that's when I'm like, okay, let's just, you know, find a way to feel, you know, that the risk is actually, you know, manageable at that point in time. So swimming in the dark, it was actually really fun. Um, until it was probably about three o'clock in the morning, I was getting really tired. I'm like, okay, I just need the sun to come up and then I'll feel okay. So yeah, but before that, it was, it was so much fun. It was really cool. So I know with the, like with the swim federation and the, um, the channel crossings, the official channel crossings, you know, where there's no wetsuit and stuff, they're working with the coast guard because this is a huge, like huge freighters go through there. I mean, is there anything, any kind of conversation going on with coast guard or, or timing? Like, how do you, how do you know that that's clear? Did you have any idea of what the shipping lanes were going to be like? I have no idea, and I hadn't even thought about it. She just said it then. (laughs) So that would have been a high-risk situation. (laughs) I mean, I know that there was a big big ship near me at one point, but I was like, well, my boat captain will just steer me around it. That'll be fine. So So you trusted the boat captain? Yeah, totally. You just trusted the boat captain. Uh, Michael, what was it like when you saw her jump in the water knowing that... Ooh, this is going to be multi-day. Here she goes into the dark, into the Pacific Ocean. What's that moment like for you? It was quite good because I was actually asleep when she started. <laughs> uh, so it's in your first radio. <laughs> no, so I I was not on the boat the whole period. I was first land crew, so we kind of had worked work crewing in in sort of shifts, um, roughly about sort of twelve-ish hour sort of shifts. So we waved goodbye to Mel and the and the the night crew. Well, it was about six o'clock um, that night. Went back to the place we were staying at, had some dinner, and went to bed. So I I, I had a great time, although I hadn't really been sleeping all that well with like, everything that's sort of floating around in my head. So um, we got up at about I think my alarm went off at about six, and I had a look at where the tracker was, and I'm like, ooh, she's actually going a bit quicker than what we'd planned. So we might actually need to get moving. Um, sooner than we thought so but in the end it was you ended up coming in Mel ended up coming in about when when we originally thought but that gave us time to just get down to the beach and hang out and and check out what was going on so it didn't end up being the rush that we originally thought it was going to be. How'd she look coming out of the water? Um, Surprisingly fresh Um, you were actually able to Mel was able to like walk out without too much hassle didn't need a great deal of help 
being dragged out or like carried off the beach and up the up the um the path um she was relatively fresh and i walked with her all the way up to the to the rv from the beach and we chatted she was quite chirpy i think you were kind of looking forward to a good feed and a bit of sleep as well but yeah happy to have that bit done and and just quite happy to have a chat and actually have a conversation with some some other people than the little fish that might have been floating around (laughs) did you have any adverse effects to like taking in salt water um you know your mouth swelling anything like that chafing from the salt Yes. Yes, I did. All of those things. Yes. At Superfrog, uh, my wetsuit, because it was a new wetsuit as well. So, you know, oh, <laughs> why not? <laughs> um, I chafed a little bit. So I was like, okay, what else can I do? So I taped my neck and the tape lasted about 10 kilometers. And then I just tore it off because it all scrunched up. So it wasn't really doing anything. So I had about 25K with nothing on my neck, but my wetsuit tearing it up. Um, so I ended up with a nasty, nasty wetsuit burn too, and actually affected me particularly on the bike because, um, turning my head was quite painful. Um, and also, you know, you have to turn your head constantly to look behind you. And then on the run, I couldn't, um, look down very far because it just it'd pull against my neck. Like all the, um, back of my, my hair was getting all matted and stuck into it. So yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty nasty. And then. Um, my swimmer friends had said, you know, wash your mouth out every couple of hours with some um, alcohol-based mouthwash to, you know, just try and help with the salt water with your mouth. And so I was I was doing that, but then we kind of forgot a couple of times and the spacing ended up being every three hours-ish and whatever. And my mouth got quite badly burnt from the salt water and ended up with um, some ulcers on the side of my tongue. So... Um, yeah, eating for the next, like that day it was okay, but I think it was in the next day I was really, really struggling to eat a lot. Um, I usually rely on having Vegemite sandwiches along with salt tablets to help my salt intake, but I just couldn't have Vegemite. I was, <laughs> I was like, I felt very betrayed by it um, just because it was too much salt on my tongue and I was, I was really struggling. So I ended up then using the mouthwash and brushing my teeth when I'd come into the RV, but you know, it just... I, you could tell when I'd use the mouthwash because I was very vocal about how much it hurt. Yeah, so I, I definitely did have quite a few problems um, from the swim that then affected me for the, the rest, of, rest of the time as well. Josie said that you're the definition of solution energy. What does that, what does that mean? What does solution energy mean for you? Yeah, yeah. So I would, um, you know, I'd be on the bike and I'd start – feeling something's a little bit off or, you know, go, okay, well, you know, I might need this next time. So what I would do, um, one particular time, like I was starting to, um, starting to really struggle. And so I stopped and Heidi was standing, um, near the, near the RV and I stopped and said, okay, I am going to stop for a sleep, um, because I'm feeling really angry. I'm eating a lot. It's not helping. I'm starting to get tunnel vision. This is what's happening. So can you guys just figure out where we can stop and then I'll stop and have a sleep. They're like, okay, yep, no worries. And then, you know, another time um, I would stop and go, okay, so I'm sick of eating this now, so can you please do this instead and I'll have this and I'll have this and, you know, and try that. They're like, okay. So they were just just blown away by the fact that I'd be like, okay, these are my instructions, all right, and go. Because (laughs) I said to them, like, but I'd had all this time of like, okay, issue, what's my solution around that? How can I phrase it best to get the message across? And that's very clear and concise. And then I, my crew would know exactly what they need to do, exactly what they need, I need. And then, you know, then we'll be, we'll be fine from there. And so, you know, that was basically like, you know, every time I stopped, I'm like, okay, this is the story. Okay. And yeah, off you go. And so they, I think 
found that communication incredibly helpful. But I mean, that's that's what I'm used to doing. Like that's what Michael's used to as well. Did you want to say something? Yeah, it's just um, a lot of people, a lot of athletes, when they start getting really tired, they um, the the brain sort of switches off. I think in some ways Mel's brain switches on more, and Josie and that and the guys who haven't crewed for Mel before were really quite surprised at how alert. Um, she stays even in like when she's really really fatigued and and late and late in races she's still able to completely tell you what she needs when she needs it how she wants it this is what I want when how and why which most athletes they they can't do they just go to mush their brain switches off and they're like oh, 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 oh. <laughs> they can't make a decision as to whether you want a coffee gel or a chocolate gel their brains like they can't and Mel, Mel will tell you no I want this gel and I want it now and I want it this and blah 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 so that's that's a really big surprise for a lot of people about how conscious she is the whole way through an event there was a couple of times though that I couldn't make a decision but then I'd just say to you I don't know what to do and then can you please help me make a decision here and that was generally around should I stop and rest or should I keep going and or like you know I'd you know they say oh what do you want I'm like I don't know, but I'd already given my crew like a three-page word document about this is me, this is what I do, this is what I don't like, this is what to say to me, this is what not to say to me, like just basically everything, like nutrition options, whatever. And I say like, if I'm not able to make a decision, I need you guys to take over and make that decision for me as well. So I kind of do all that preparation work for them as well beforehand so they kind of know what to expect when I'm at that point and they're not like freaked out going, oh, but you're not telling us what to do. What do we do? I don't understand. So they'd already, we'd already gone through all that before as well. So, yeah. And you're giving them information in the experience when you're having it. So you're not just saying, give me the chocolate gel or the, the caffeine gel. You're saying, okay, this is where I am right now. So now they actually have more information, real-time information updated from the sheet that you gave them, which is continually feeding the solution energy of everybody around there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I feel that if I don't tell you what's going on, you're not going to know, especially on the bike. I don't have very, very clear tells that I'm fatiguing because I, um, over the years I've gotten rid of all of them. So <laughs> on purpose. So like, you know, people go, oh, you know, when people usually fatigue, their head starts to drop. I'm like, all right, got rid of that. And then someone else said, oh, I can tell you're fatiguing because your cadence drops. And so I was like, okay, worked on that, got rid of that. And Willie, one of my crew, he said, he's like, I could only tell is when you started to wriggle around. And I was like, yeah, I fidget a lot when, you know, I'm really starting to struggle. He's like, that's the only thing I can tell. Everything else, like nothing else changes in what you do. So I know that my crew looking at me, they won't know what I'm feeling. So I have to verbalize it. I have to tell them. You broke the Swim course record by two hours, which is amazing. And then um, it is unconfirmed if you have the bike course record. The RD said you had it, but you started to do your own calculations, and you're not sure if you've got that or not. But how long did that – how long was the bike for? Okay, so the swim was 21 miles, okay? And then the bike is about four – what is it? 400. 400. Yeah, so my Garmin ended up being – I think it was like – 620, 615, something or other. Um, I don't know where my Garmin is, so I have to find it. And then That's I'll fine. You don't need to know where like, your Garmin is right now. Yeah, exactly. Wait, exactly. <laughs> so not only is it, you know, 400 miles, but 20,000 feet of climbing yeah. as well. Yeah. How long did that take? We've got 56 hours, but I think it was a little bit shorter than that. I think just over two days. 
It's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. And how long are you, are you on a real ske- nap schedule? I know there's some times where you're like, you know what, nothing's working. That means I need to step away and take a nap. But otherwise, did you have a sleep schedule that you were trying to keep? Yeah, originally um, I had a couple of different plans for sleep. So um, I was uh, looking at what the guys did at RAM, how much did they sleep? So I'll try and model something off that. So um, I had a friend who's a hand cyclist who did RAM um, last year. And that's the right, right, right across America. Right across America, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I looked at that and he was sleeping for like 90 minutes every 24 hours. I was like, okay, well, you know, that would be the ultimate goal. But if I can't do that, then I'll bring it back to roughly every 12 hours having a sleep. So what we did on the first day, it was always a plan to sleep out of the swim. Um, just get horizontal for a while, have a sleep, especially if um, I was had that kind of swaying feeling in my head that you get sometimes when you've been in the water for a long period of time. So, you know, I wanted to actually my crew had that a hell of a lot worse than I did, the poor things, because they're on the boat. And when they stopped, they were like, they couldn't stand still. They were just, you know, still, still on the boat. Um, yeah, so I had a couple of hours sleep and then, and then we went through and... It was only, we stopped, I think it was probably about like 9pm or something. I started riding about like 1.30 in the afternoon or something um, because I was starting to get a bit tired. But the plan was always to try and get as far as I could on the first day. And, you know, so Michael was crewing at that particular shift and he's like, all right, well, you know, we'll pull you off. We'll give you something to eat. Um, You know, I'd eat like some pasta or just something different instead of, you know, gels and sports bars and, you know, whatever else I was having and sandwiches. Um, So I did that and then, and I got off, I think it was about 150 kilometers at that point. And then I said to my crew, I said, well, if I can get to 200, that'd be really cool. Cause then, you know, I'm a third of the way roughly through the bike. So, you know, that'd be really nice for a day one completion. And so then, um, as we we're running along, you know, I was getting more and more tired. I think I was climbing at that point and these guys were just exhausted. They're like, I just need you to stop right now. Like they were, they were done. And they you kept saying, how much further have you got? And I was like, I've got like 5k. And they're like, okay, well, because we didn't know the terrain. So we didn't know where was going to be a good spot to pull off on the side of the road to stop anyway. So I said, okay, well, you know, wherever we stop, that's where you're going to stop as close as you are to 200 kilometers. That's fine. I'm like, yep, done. And so we ended up stopping and Michael's like, what's your garment at? Like, doesn't matter. It's fine. <laughs> I was like 198. I'm like, I don't care. I was at the point where I just needed to stop as well. So, and that was probably, I was about like four o'clock in the morning, I think I ended up stopping and then I slept for a couple of hours. Um, and I was back up on the road by about seven, I think, because we were looking at the, um, at the terrain at that point and they're like, okay, so, you know, you can get over this little climb and then, you know, there's a bigger climb. Cause I said, I kept saying to them, it's like, I don't want to do that really, really big descent in the dark. Like that was always my main, you know, that just looked incredibly terrifying. So I was like, I want to stop before that point. But I realized as I was, as I was riding that I was just, I was, was that, oh, that was the second day, wasn't it? Oh, that was the second day. It all feels like one continuous day. So it's very confusing to know. Um, yeah, so I ended up stopping and had a couple of hours sleep and then, yeah, got up and got moving in again the next day. But um, we'd ridden past um, some fires. So the fires were about like five-ish kilometers away from where I was and the wind was blowing the other way. So it was never an issue for me. But the issue was the girls got stuck and it took them about like five hours to get to the crew to swap over. So it was more of an issue for them, just like they'd been awake all night, you know, they 
like you sleep as much and probably less than I do because you know you're trying to organize everything still before you go to sleep they were doing some live video during that traffic jam yeah so oh, yeah. yeah I think they were really I think they were challenged yeah oh I'm not surprised <laughs> but they were so they were so grateful that it wasn't affecting you yes I mean, yes. how perfect. That was amazing. You yeah. were able to keep moving forward because Mother Nature knew that Mel was coming through and she should not get in your way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because I, I didn't even realize. Like, I saw a red flash and I was like, oh, you know, you're so sleep deprived. You don't know if you're hallucinating or you don't know what's going on at that point in time. And then I stopped at one stage and I can't remember who it was. Someone said, I'll look over there and I could just see all this fire burning. I was like, oh, Jesus. I'm like, they're like, it's okay. It's not going to affect you. I'm like, okay, yep, that's fine. That's fine. It can it can stay over there as much as it wants. But then it was like, well, I need to get as far away from that as possible in case the wind changes. So yeah, that was also definitely a motivation to get out of that that area as well before we um before we had a rest. And you are, am I correct in saying you're plant based? Yes. How long have you been plant based? Um, since the start of the year, but I was vegetarian for about nineteen years before that. Cool. Yeah. What made you ditch the dairy? My body, my body stopped and said, no, can't do it anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. No more secretion. Yeah. Michael and I, we um, we did a bikepacking trip through Tasmania in Australia for a couple of weeks. And because we're on our bikes, we couldn't have anything that needed refrigeration. So we couldn't have any dairy. And so then after that, whenever I ate it, I just felt incredibly sick. I was like, well, my body's telling me I just need to stop. So, yeah, I did. That's a gift. Yeah. So what did you have for nutrition? on the bike yeah so um i use like i my fallback is always sandwiches i really really like that i find they're really easy to digest so like peanut butter and jam and then um biscoff spread is just divine <laughs> what is biscoff spread? oh my god it is heaven <laughs> i don't think we have any yeah, no i, I think we, it we ate it all yeah so it's um it's a dutch biscuit that they then crush and put into a spread um yeah it's vegan friendly i'm so excited it's like it's my version of nutella really because i used to oh, use okay, nutella yeah, yeah. but yeah like it's it's quite sweet um yeah and it's it's Really, really. <laughs> um, so I was using that. Um, what else was I using? Um, cliff bars and humor gels. I quite like as well. Um, I find they're they're quite easy on the on my stomach as well. Um, and then just like moving between noon and Gatorade for my um, for yeah my electrolyte drink um, and Coke as well is generally a fallback if I need something as a bit of an extra boost. And then um, I've ever had a bit of like juice as well. Potato chips. Potato chips are really, really good, and I really like them. Um, just for the extra salt, like they're they're amazing. And it's so funny. What I do is I tuck them into my jersey pocket because I like not into my jersey pocket, just into my jersey, just you know, in my top next to my bra, because then they don't get crushed. Because if they get crushed, then they get stuck in my throat, and I'll start coughing and I start vomiting, and I want to avoid that. So I learned many years ago when I was I actually didn't have any spare space in my pockets to put them. I'm like, where do I put this packet? So I was like, ah, oh, my jersey's got space there, so that's where I where I pop, <laughs> pop them now. So yeah, that's my my little <laughs> my little tip for the day. <laughs> what about caffeine? Did you drink coffee at all or were you just getting the caffeine through the gels? Caffeine and, and through, through gels and Coke. I don't drink coffee. I don't like the taste of it. So, yeah. Were you trying to hit a certain amount of calories per hour? Uh, yes and no. It's I don't really go by calories. I just go by eating as much as I can, really. And generally, I was eating every half an hour on the bike, roughly. Yeah. Every tw yeah. Every 20 minutes, half an hour. So, I feel like try and get as many calories as I can before my stomach stops. Um, but I found this time around because my heart rate was so low, I actually kept my heart rate 
majority of the time at about 120, 130. And then if I was climbing up to 140 and then the really, really big climb that I had to do, I got up to about 150. Like I kept it so super, super low purely, you know, because I wanted to get through it. Um, and then have as fresh enough legs as I could for the run, but also so I could continue to absorb as much nutrition as possible. Because I find as soon as my heart rate gets high, my stomach shuts down, I can't eat. So, yeah. So you get off the bike in Badwater Basin, which is now 200 feet below sea level. And um, now you've got another, I think, 13 or 14,000 feet of climbing on this 135-mile run. And your longest run has been 100K. So what, you know, Badwater, typically, you know, we've all heard about the infamous race and it being so incredibly hot. Is that the same even this time of year? No, it's a little bit less. So when Badwater, the actual race is on, it's over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. But I think when I went through, it might have been like high 80s, low 90s. Yeah. How do you do yeah. in the heat? I actually do quite well, which is surprisingly because um, of my complexion. Like I'm incredibly pale. So I'm not the kind of person you'd expect to do well in the heat. But um I had a, a previous coach a number of years ago who I used to say to him, like, I don't do well in the heat, I don't cope well. And he pulled me up and he said, you're going to have to change your mindset around that because you're going to Hawaii to do Epic Five. It's going to be hot. So sort it out. And I'm like, oh, oh, right, okay. And I, I never thought about it. I never considered it. So um, back to the mental strategies, I developed mental strategies on how to deal with heat. So um I do a couple of things. I use um, a gratitude practice. So I would, you know, if I feel the sun incredibly intensely, I'll just, you know, be thankful and say, you know, that's amazing. Thank you. You know, and I, I imagine it giving me energy and powering me along. It's like I've got, you know, solar panels on me that it's, you know, it's providing me with that energy to continue to move forward. And um, I also never say it's hot. And it was interesting because I said that to my crew beforehand and I think Josie was out of the room at the time because she said to me at one stage, she's like, it's really hot, isn't it? And I just looked dead at her and I said, we don't say that around here. And I think she was like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I think she's got a bit. She never said it again. But that's one of the things like you know if I verbalize it it's my truth and so I don't want to verbalize that because then you know then it's it's stuck it's you know it's out there so I go with I can think whatever I want but it can't come out of my mouth so I can you know complain I can you know bitch and moan I can think it's incredibly hot but I don't let it I don't let myself verbalize it and generally you know I don't don't focus on that I mean my resilience definitely declines the um, the more fatigued that I get, and I definitely found the stretch um, that I did during the day. I mean, we had an idea to probably to sleep during the hottest part of the day anyway to try and manage that as well. Um, but the stretch, where was it down to? Um, the, before the big climb, what was that point? The uh, stone. So from Furnace Creek down to uh, Stovepipe. Yeah, Stovepipe. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I found that section was probably the hardest because um, I'd, I started the run at night. So I started the run probably about 9.30 at night and we went through to the Oasis, that really big hotel. I'd, I've never been there before, oh, to Furnace Creek. So we did that at night time. And then I got up and was started running like it was early. It was probably around maybe like five, six o'clock in the morning or something that I started running again. Um, but then I got through to Stonepipe maybe like 
around midday, one o'clock or something. And that was, that was hard. Like that I found was probably the most challenging part of the run because it's, it's flat, it's open, there's no wind and it's just the sun and it's just, yeah, like by that time, like Stove I'm... pipe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm in an oven at that point. <laughs> but you don't talk about it. No, I do not. <laughs> but I mean, that's a, that's a very wise mindset and practice to have because, I mean, we know from material science, like it's what we focus on expands, like what we, what every action right so an action could be something that we say an action it's going to have that equal and opposite reaction so whatever it is that we're putting out we are going to get it back I've seen people I've seen BJ go to race at elevation and not give it a second thought like I'm going to be fine elevation doesn't affect me I'm fine yeah I live at 30 feet and I'm going to almost 6,000 and it doesn't affect me and it doesn't affect him and I think we can get really caught up in temperatures, water temperatures, um, temperature of the sun. And one of the techniques I use is I just say, I am the sun. And why would I ever harm myself? Like, I am the sun. It's, it's fine. It's great. The run, now you've done this Catalina Channel Crossing. You've rode your bike for 54, 56 hours, and now you're running the infamous bad water path here. Where does it get tough and who do you call upon? What do you call upon to keep going? And I know you've got the mental focus, but there's ever a time where you're just like, I got to pull in like some kind of emotional strength. Yeah. So that, that section I was talking about through the stovepipe, like that was probably the toughest part of the run. Um, I found that was just really, really hard. I, I, I always love having people with me on the run. I find, um, especially during, you know, things like this during ultras, I don't have anyone to talk to. Obviously, I'm not talking during the swim. I'm talking to my kayaker every so often. Um, on the bike, you know, I'd come in. We'd have a really brief chat, you know, have something to eat, put my, you know, normal tech boots on, then go to sleep. So I wasn't actually having any conversations with anyone. So then by the time I got to the run, I hadn't spoken to anyone really for three days. And I was so excited to be able to talk to people. <laughs> so um, what I do a lot of the time is actually – you know, it's just start talking to people and remove the focus from myself. So when I train, um, I listen to podcasts a lot. So it kind of takes me out of, you know, just that intense internal focus all the time. So I have something else to concentrate on. So I find what works best for me is to have somebody next to me to have a conversation with so I can draw away from what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking. And I also tell them, I also, you know, say, look, you know, I'm struggling at this point, you know, I need you guys to help. Like, especially towards the end of the bike, I was incredibly tired. All I wanted to do was stop and sleep, but I knew I was like 30 kilometers from the end and I just, I didn't want to stop. So I said to my crew, I'm like, can you guys please just provide a bit more emotional support? You know, I just need a bit more. Can you just stop a bit more often? Even if you're not giving me anything except just being there, and then that really helped. So yeah, generally um, those two things, you know, having someone next to me just to have a chat with or, you know, even if I'm not responding, just having the presence of somebody or them just talking to me, then that's that's really, really nice. Or yeah, just, you know, my crew, you know, just providing that extra, extra support. Because I know that if they see me, I see them, then, you know, they're there, they're with me in this. And that just, that really helps as well. You don't feel alone. Exactly. What was like the most touching moment you ever had? Because now you're pairing up and you're running with people like where they really helped lift you up or helped you open up or move forward, whatever it may be. Like, was there a moment with your crew during the run where you just really remember it being very powerful? 
There was a, a couple. Um, so the first big climb out of um, Stovepipe that I ended up just doing with um, with Man. Was it that one? Yeah, it was that one. So again, one continuous day. <laughs> um, he ended up just, you know, talking about himself and about his life and, you know, about these experiences he'd been through. And, you know, we're joking to say, you know, we're like, he's like, have some, oh, that's right, I had some popcorn on the run. He's like, have some popcorn, put on a Netflix show and I'll tell you a story. And I was like, okay, sounds good. And um, Michael and Will kept stopping like, oh, you know, we'll swap Will out. I'm like, can we just wait until this story's finished? Because I didn't really want to like stop it halfway. And we ended up talking the whole way up. Like it was, I don't know, probably about four hours or whatever, however long it took me to get up. So that was, that was amazing. And I felt, you know, incredibly blessed that he was, you know, sharing all of, all of that with me. And then there was another point when, um, it must've been going up Mount Whitney towards, yeah. So I was with my friend, Willie, um, the Australian, I had a coach, Craig Percival, and he passed away at the end of 2016 quite suddenly. And I find when I'm doing these really, really big events, like it, like I feel his presence, but also it really, you know, I feel the sadness of his loss. And, you know, Josie kept reminding me, she's like, you're just feeling the love. You're feeling, you know, it's not the loss, it's the love. And at one stage, you know, I just started crying and I was just, you know, really emotional and Willie just put his arm around me and it was just, it was just really beautiful. And it's exactly what I needed at that point in time. And then, yeah, there was one other time when, there was a, a black bird, like it was a, a crow or something. I'm not entirely sure what it was. And um, it just kept kind of like hopping along as I was walking up um, up the first climb. And I just jokingly said to Michael, and I said, oh, you know, it's one of the vultures. It's waiting to pick over my carcass when I stop like, <laughs> like this. And he stopped and he looked at me and he's like, no, it's it's Craig. You know, he's keeping an eye on you. He's making sure it's like you're okay. And oh, I just, you know, yeah. And it showed up the next day as well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I kept um, I kept seeing birds um, for the rest of the time after that too. So it was, yeah, it was beautiful. On the other spectrum, was there? I know there were some costumes or something that we saw on Instagram that uh, that came out. Was there anything that that made you smile, made you laugh, or made you like really scared? Scared. Um, <laughs> we I heard feel there like was you already one. know this story. <laughs> uh, made me laugh was when um, Scraggy turned up in a hot dog outfit. It was the first costume that I saw. And I actually had a mic on me from the documentary at the time. So I just wet myself laughing. It was very, very funny. Um, and then I was on the run with Mary at one point and there was a clown standing on the side of the road looking scary as hell. I am terrified of clowns. I do not like them at all. And this clown in particular had like a axe murderer looking mask and Mary had thought that she'd seen Willie. So we're like, we don't know who that is initially. And because we're both incredibly sleep deprived, I don't even know if I'm hallucinating. So every time I see something that's a bit unusual, I'm like, can you see that as well? Because is this just me? Like there's other times when, you know, I, I heard someone yelling and I'm like, is that no, 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 that's, that's just my, that's just my brain. Okay. Right. Right. So anyway, we saw this clown and I was like, holy crap oh my god and like so Mary and I we just fed off each other's anxieties like we were not coping and then the clown started walking and following us and then it disappeared and Mary's like it's okay it's okay it's gone and I turned around like no it's not it's right behind us and like and then he started running and we I was I was almost in tears and the crew wasn't anywhere in sight no, they're all around. Everyone was all around. They were filming it. They were like all these. And we ended up signaling to Heidi and like, shut it down. Like by then we'd figured it was one of us. But 
I, I said, I was like, I was so scared. I was almost crying. Like it took me a while to kind of calm down from that. And Willie felt so bad because he was in the clown costume. And he said, he's like, I checked with Scraggy and he said, you should be fine. And I was like, um, no, no. You're going to put that on your next crew list. (laughs) Do not dress up like a cow. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about final miles. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, I I didn't actually know what the finish line looks like. I didn't know specifically where was it was. Was there a finish line? Well, there actually was. Oh, all right. <laughs> I know, I know. There is an end point. Um, it was the, the bottom of the trailhead for Mount Whitney. So you don't have to go up the trail, thankfully. Um, yeah, because we didn't have permits or anything for that. So I was in the, in the car park. It was a little bit further on from where the Badwater Run finishes, apparently. Um, but there's a little sign, you know, Mount Whitney, whatever, where I had photos and things. So... Yeah, it was just, it was absolutely incredible. I had um, Mary, I had Willie and I had my other friend, Man, who'd come out for the run. Um, he'd driven up and he's like, I'm staying, I'm staying. And I'm like, I know you're staying. As soon as you arrived, you weren't going. <laughs> like, I knew, I knew he was going to stay. It was, um, it was really, really beautiful that he came. Willie was playing some music through his um, speaker and we we're all just chatting and, you know, it was, it was incredibly steep. Like there was, you know, there was no running whatsoever involved. Basically the whole last day that I did after I got up um, was was basically all just walking. Like I jogged for a tiny little bit and then it was just up and I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. Um, and then I had, you know, just all these random people just stopping and they'd all, you know, they were clapping and cheering and like all my crew were there and, and it was so funny because mine kept yelling. It's like, Mel, it's over there. It's over there. I'm like, it's okay. I, I know. It's okay. I'm like, I'm not racing a time right now. Like I can take my time to walk up to that point. The, the poor thing. I was so excited. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I then it was done. Like it was just, it was incredible. I just, yeah, felt, oh, I don't know. It was just, I still, I still don't know how to put into words what that feeling was like. I, I think it'll still take me time to... Yeah, to feel that. But it was amazing. Then, you know, just all these random people and they're like, okay, so what have you actually done? But they realized that there was something big going on. So they were all like, okay, we want to know, we want to be involved. And there was one woman who said, oh, we saw you coming up there, up the road. So we knew we had to wait around until, you know, you finished because, you know, we obviously figured this was something that was, that was happening. And I said, um, I said to Dan, who's the guy whose idea this whole madness is, I said to him, when I saw him that morning, I said, you know, I didn't want to finish in the nighttime. I wanted to finish during the day. I wanted to, you know, see the spectacular views of the, of the climb and everything. So I managed to finish about two o'clock in the afternoon. So that was, that was, that was perfect. So yeah. And then, you know, like I had just love really from everybody and, you know, got to hug on my crew and, you know, have lots of photos and lots of tears. And it was just, it was just absolutely incredible. I just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, gives me goosebumps thinking about it yeah you're gonna continue to to learn from it and and um boy it's such a massive accomplishment to look to look back on and so having done these multi-day ultra triathlons doing this one I'm assuming biggest thing you've ever done physically in your life mentally as well in your life uh, a lot of times we'll see you weren't so sure that that no. was the hardest thing it's mentally. Not. It's not. It's not. What's the no. hardest thing mentally you've um, done? Ultraman Canada 2014 because um, I broke my back six, nine months beforehand and then I broke my arm three months beforehand. Um, during the race, my back seized up. I vomited for four hours. I probably should have gone to hospital after the second day. And then the third day um, I finished then ended up in hospital. So I still count that as my 
life-changing moment to prove to myself, yes, you can do whatever you set your mind to. And it's still my hardest race I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. So this, it, you know, people are like, but how can three days compare to five days? But, you know, the, the question that I'm sure I'm going to get is like, how long did you train for this? And my answer is 10 years because I started doing Ironmans 10 years ago and I started doing ultras five years ago. So there was absolutely nothing that surprised me in this event because we had planned for every single possible scenario to happen because of my experience mm. over that, that amount of time. So like mentally it was challenging on the fatigue side of things because I've never been so fatigued doing anything and my body was doing weird and wonderful things because of the fatigue. Like I'd be walking straight and then suddenly my leg would just step out and I'd go sideways but not fall over. My leg, I'd just step sideways something. I'm like I had no control whatsoever. Or I'd start like swinging my legs around instead of going forwards. So like all these kind of random things that were happening but apart from that, nothing else surprised me. So Ultraman Canada sounds like a hell of a journey and probably gave you a lot of confidence for what you were embarking on um, on October 9th on that evening. So what I was leading up to is that a lot of people will find that after these big events, they kind of fall into this like post-event depression. And being in the mental health world and, and taking these mental reps as um, – weighing those as heavy, if not heavier than the physical training, what kind of guidance can you give people or perspective about that dip on the other side? So after, after Epic Five, I didn't have that. And I reflected back and I was like, why, why didn't I? And it's because I'd prepared myself for the post race during my training which I didn't really realize that I was doing at the time until afterwards as well. So um, one thing that I really do is I just take time. Like I put no pressure whatsoever on myself to do anything um, since the event. The biggest thing I had to do is run out to the curb to get my food from the Uber Eats driver. <laughs> and that was a struggle. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to run. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, literally I will not do any form of exercise probably for a month um, on purpose unless I want to. So I just am guided by by physically, by mentally, what I want to do, what I don't want to do, um, purely because I'm such a slave to my program when I'm on my program. I just completely revert to the opposite when I'm not. So I feel like I need to give myself that mental space away from, you know, that regime <laughs> all of the time because um, it's just so intense. And so what I do is if I want to do something, then I will. But if I don't, then I won't. And it's to the point where, like, after previous races, I've driven to the pool after work, I've gotten out of the car, and I've said to myself, what are you doing? Why are you forcing yourself to do this? I'm like, huh, hmm, oh, well, I won't. Got back in the car, drove home. And that's, that's the, you know, the, the way that I really kind of decompress. I socialize a lot more than what I normally do. Um, I mean, my friends, you know, they are very understanding, amazing, amazing people. A majority of my social group is now, you know, hey, come for a ride, come for a run. And I do have a couple of friends that are non-sport friends, um, which I still do, you know, have a lot of phone conversations with, you know, every so often I'll have dinner, but they understand that I'm not going to go out for a late night, you know, because I'm just it's going to completely ruin me and it's not going to happen. So, you know, we'll catch up for dinners or, you know, we'll catch up for a lunch or something like that. So, you know, I really 
just try and kind of swing in completely the opposite way. And I don't put pressure on myself to return at a certain date either. So I will, you know, and I've done this with my coach before and she understands it's, it's really cool. So, um, I'll get to the point where I'll start to feel a bit itchy and feel like, okay, I want to start doing something. I want to start training for something. And so then I'll say to her, say to her, okay, maybe, you know, in a couple of weeks at this date, then I'm ready to go back on program. Um, and I've never had the experience where I've then turned around and gone, mm, actually, no, I'm not ready yet because I feel like I give myself enough time to get to that mental space to be, to be ready for that as well. I mean, I have had that post-race dip um, previously and yeah, I just, I found that after the last couple of events, like doing this complete take time, don't have a specific date to come back to and whatever's really, really helped me. Do you think that's self-love? Absolutely. Yeah. Because someone could look at you and say, gosh, you beat yourself up. And so, but to allow your body to absorb, allow your body to rest, allow your mind to rest and be okay with not doing anything. What does self-love feel like? Oh, it's so good. And it's really funny. I um, I think about it when I'm in my really deep training, when I'm exhausted. I'm like, how good's it going to feel when all you have to do is lie on the couch and watch Netflix? Like, <laughs> I'm just, I get so excited about that possibility. Um, yeah, it just, it feels amazing because, you know, as I said, like, I'm just, I put so much pressure on myself to perform and to get my training done and to do all of these things that not having that pressure, it's just, it's such a relief and it's just, it's lovely. Like, Willie was saying, you know, he's going to come down in a couple of weeks and my instant thought was okay so I'll have to sort out my training and I stopped and went I don't have to amazing so it's it's a really nice feeling it's really really yeah really what do you cool. want your crew to know oh my god I I sent them an email yesterday just saying I can't put into words how grateful I am for for all of them and for everything that they did because I mean my success is their success so I could not do what I do without them like this is not an individual sport, an individual race, like none of the races that I do that are ultras that I could do without, without anybody there with me. So yeah, they're all extremely, extremely special people to me. And I feel like we've all just inserted each other in ourselves in each other's lives. And, you know, this is a lifelong bond that we've, we've now developed from this. And so, yeah, I've got so much love for each, each individual. And yeah, it was just, it was just magical to be able to share this time with them because especially like, um, you know, Mary, Josie and Heidi, like I didn't know them beforehand, but now, you know, we've just got this amazing connection that we can always draw back on. So yeah. Michael, cool. what do you want Mel to know? In what sense? <laughs> Whatever's in the depth of your heart. What do you want her to know of, of what, you, what you've witnessed um, from her accomplishments and the way she navigates her life? I guess from my perspective, um, because obviously I live with Mel and we're, we're married, I, this is not any great surprise to me. Um, and, I, and I said it to a few of the crew um, throughout the event, like there, there was only two ways that this thing was going to finish. It was going to end up. There was one Mel was going to complete or the other one was hospital. The, there was no other possibilities. Quitting was never an option. Um, the only way she was quitting was if we pull her off because she needs to go to hospital. So for me, I, 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 it's, like I said, it's not a surprise. I see how much she trains. I see how much she puts into it. I guess for maybe some of the other crew who don't have that day-to-day contact, it it might come as a bit of a surprise or, or a massive achievement um, or like just 
uh, amazing kind of concept as to what she's been able to achieve. For me, like this is this is honestly, it's not a surprise. Um, I knew she was going to get it done, and and that's the, that was literally the only other the, the only option that was coming out of this. Um, I've seen. Um, like in previous ultras, ultra events that I've crewed with Mel, like I've seen her in really, really bad places, deep, deep holes. Um, like she mentioned, I mean, uh, Ultraman Canada when she ended up in a hospital. She's quite, she knows how to suffer and knows how to put herself in a big hole. So this, this was just going to be a longer hole if needed to be. And I think that has that has so much to do with, I think, your success is that both of you guys are in no doubt that it's going to get done. Yeah, you both share the belief. Like this is your, it's a partnership. We're all in, and it, it shouldn't be a surprise because it's expected. Did you come away with anything new? Did you learn anything new about yourself through this experience? Yeah, I I definitely do think that it was it was really quite interesting. Actually, um, we had a, a pre athlete dinner with athletes and crew and everybody, and every single other event I've turned up to, I've felt imposter complex I've felt don't really belong here people are kind of looking at me they're looking me up and down going really you what hang on where's the athlete kind of situation this is the first time that I turned up and said I belong here which was really surprised me because I I hadn't really kind of thought about that or considered that until um until that moment until you know I just I was like I deserve to be here as much as everybody else and so that I feel like I can take that confidence now moving forward and just go, actually, you know, you, you are pretty badass. <laughs> you can do these things. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's really my big thing at the moment. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think I need a bit more time to reflect on everything else, but I think that's probably my main, my main takeaway at the moment that, you know, I am pretty freaking tough. <laughs> So as we're moving in for a lot of people's off seasons, you know, they're coming off their races and, um, you know, some people, they, they may consider it being falling off, you know, um, perhaps they're getting into winter months where it's not that motivating to get up in the morning. How do you get up and get it done? Or what kind of advice do you have for them that to reassure them that they're not alone, that, you know, these are struggles that we've all experienced and how do they get up when they don't want to get up? Yeah, I've I've got some really good good ones for this. So I take all the decisions possible out of my morning. So everything's organized beforehand, like my running clothes, my ride, whatever, whatever I'm doing. It's all all pre-planned because if I need to go searching for something, you know, if um, Scraggy's still asleep in bed, then I don't want to wake him, don't want to turn a light, you know, then it's like, oh, it's just too hard. One of the main things that I do, um, I mean, we have two cats. So as soon as my alarm goes off, they jump on me and I don't want to wake him up. So I have to get up to feed them. But even before we had that um, as an external motivation, I had my coach once, I can't remember what program it was in, was some particular session. And she just written this one line. She's like, you know, don't think about it, just do it. And I'm it would have been like a speed session because I really find those really, really difficult. And so um, I thought about that and I'm like, huh, don't think, just do. Okay, interesting. So what I did as the, then turned that into my mantra when I woke up in the mornings and my alarm went off, it was like, don't think, just do. So just get out of bed. As soon as that alarm goes off, don't let yourself lie there and think, do I really want to do this? Because you know what the answer is going to be. The answer is going to be you want to lie in bed where it's nice and cozy and you don't want to do your session. So get up, get dressed, and then, you know, it's just, just start as well. So 
I can't count the amount of times I've been halfway down the road when I'm running and I've woken up really. So I was like, oh, right, we're running. Good. Okay. This is what's happening now. Good. <laughs> um, especially when you're incredibly fatigued. Um, and the other one, you know, so that's first thing in the morning. Then at the end of the day, um, I'll get home and put my workout clothes on straight away. I don't let myself sit on the couch because again, it's that decision point of now I have to get up and now I have to do it. It's like, if you don't let yourself sit down in the first place, then you're just going to continue on and then your day is done after you've done your workout. Then you can sit down and relax and, you know, that's that's where you kind of, you finish really. So, yeah, for me, my my job is very intense and it's very, you know, can be quite high pressure and there's a lot of, you know, decisions that I make throughout the day. So I get decision fatigue quite easily. And so if I take all those decisions out that I don't have to do when around my sport, that's, that's also but. The other one that I also use is that um, I'm a people pleaser and so I use that to my advantage because I don't want to let my coach down. So I think I'm like, well, she's gone to all this trouble to put my program together. The least I can do is do it. I can execute it. So that's also the kind of way that I use that personality trait in a positive way as well. Yeah, I think you really got to get ahead of the, the thinking mind. Once that little sucker gets activated, you're putting yourself in a battlefield of choices and options when really there's only one option when you have a goal is get up and move towards that goal. Mm. How do people follow you and get in touch with you? I know you've got other podcasts lined up and I saw perhaps did you put together a Facebook page where all that stuff's going to go? Yeah. So today, because <laughs> I've had so many people say, you know, you should put put together like an athlete page on Facebook and I was like oh okay so today I finally did it <laughs> so it's uh Melissa Yuri ultra endurance triathlete um so that's my public page so that's where I'm going to start putting up all of my um race reports and podcast interviews and photos and kind of all of that stuff's going to all live there because um I've got my my personal Facebook but I find yeah you know it's just it's getting a bit too much so I kind of need to separate that out now um so that's that's probably the main main place with that um my Instagram is at rank Mel, it's R-A-N-G-A-M-E-L. And I know my accent's probably going to completely throw that off. So you'll have to link that one. <laughs> um, same handle on Twitter. I don't really use Twitter that much. Um, and I've also got a blog where I put up all my race reports or um, generally once a month I'll write something. So if I'm not racing, I'll just write something about what I'm thinking about at that time. Um, and that's rangamel.wordpress.com. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. We really appreciate you um, letting us get the scoop. Oh, we yeah. got the first scoop. You did. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And many safe travels to you guys. Any final words, Scraggy? No, it's been great just having a chat and sort of starting to get this story out. There'll be plenty more of podcasts and that sort of stuff and more and more of the story will slowly tease out and Mel will slowly remember more and more pieces um, as her memory starts to come back. Mm. Well, I'm really grateful that we got the rough cut. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been amazing. <laughs>